Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Second in our installment of messages on wildfire, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, I talked to mom this week, and I was telling her, I said, mom, this series is, uh, it's really important. This is a really important series that I'm in, and it's also a little bit controversial. And she said, then why would you do that? Because she wants to protect me, right? She didn't want me to get eaten. But uh, she's like, why would, you, why would you get controversial? Why would you approach something that could get you in trouble? And the, the answer to that is because it's so important. The next generation hangs in the balance on this issue, okay? We got to get this right for the next generation because there are people out there now who are figuring out how to take shots at Christianity and the bullets that they're using are really, really effective on the next generation if we don't get this right. So we've got to get this right, and that's why I'm spending time on it. That's why these messages take so long. I have, a lot of, I have to lay a lot of groundwork. I have to develop a lot of things so that you can put the whole picture together, and that's, a, that's a, the case again today. So just bear with me, but I want to start with uh, something that you should know by now. If you go to Cross Lane for longer than three weeks, I want you to know this. The vision statement of our church, I'm going to say three and when I get to three, let's say it together. One, two, three, bringing people to Jesus. Excellent. If you're new to Cross Lane, that's what we're about. That's, that's our statement. That's the thing. We go to bed at night, that's what we're thinking about. Wake up in the morning, come to the office, that's what I'm trying to figure out. How can I bring people to Jesus, whether they're Christians already or not? My goal is to get them as close to Jesus as I can get them. Jesus changes somebody, I don't change anybody. Okay, If I can get you closer to Jesus... He will love you, and as you are loved, your life will change as you experience the love of Christ. That's the goal behind our vision statement. The mission statement's pretty, it's, it's, you know, kind of builds on that. Bringing people to Jesus by equipping the church to grow close to God, to build relationships with one another, and to reach those who are far from Jesus. Now, that's, that's the vision and mission, and I, I shared that with you in the, vision state, in the vision sermon that I did early in the year. I also shared with you the core values at Cross Lane. And you may or may not, may not know these, but I want you to know these. Take the acrostic of Christ, and you can fill out the, the core values of our church. Compassion for lost people is really important for us that we, we never, we pray constantly around here for lost people. We want influence with lost people. I want you to bring your non-churched friends. I want to meet them. I want to have a chance to make friends with them and get to know them and, and just love them, honestly. So that's important. H stands for humility. We believe that that is at the core of Christianity, that humility, it's, I mean, to pursue humility is really to pursue Jesus because he was humility personified. R stands for real. We believe in an authentic message. We believe that we need to be authentic. That means that we be honest, that, that you know, we just tell the world, we haven't got all this figured out. I don't have all this figured out. Listen, hang out with me for a while and you'll discover pretty quick, Brett needs lots of Jesus. Lots and lots of Jesus. We're just real. We, we admit it. We're authentic. We don't want to put on airs and make you think we're something we're not, okay? So that's really important to us. I stands for irresistible grace. I grew up under great grace preaching. I try to be a good grace preacher, and hopefully as you listen to me, you experience the, the wonderful grace of Jesus and, and in your life just as you walk with him. You don't even need to listen to me. You don't need me for grace. You, you need Jesus for grace. And hopefully as you walk with him, you experience lots and lots of that. And we just like to talk about it. The S stands for simplicity. I'll get to that in just a little bit. It's really important to us. We just want things to be simple. And then T stands for total acceptance. We may not like everything that you do, but we're going to accept you. 
right? When you walk in the doors here, we're going to try to look past whatever. You say, Brett, you don't know what I did last night. Don't care what you did. Don't care, don't care what, your, what your life is about or what you're involved in. We want a chance to love you. Now, that's hard. It's hard to love people that are different. It's hard to love people that have a different mindset, different philosophy, or different behavior patterns than us. But that's what we're trying to do. Those are our core values. I want to go back to that S, though. The S, simplicity, we're just doing everything we can to resist doing anything that makes it difficult for someone to place their faith in Jesus. We do not want to be in the way. We don't want our personalities. We don't want the way we communicate. Um, we don't want, certainly not the way we treat you. We don't want that to get in the way. We don't want what we expect of somebody to get in the way of their uh, faith, being able to place their faith in Jesus. The only thing that should make us resistible is the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not be lost to God, would not perish, but would, would know everlasting life. Now, why anybody would, would resist that message, a message of love and inclusion and grace, I don't know why anybody would resist that. But if people come to Cross Lane and they're going to resist anything, that's what we want them to resist, nothing else. Um, first of all, we want them to, you know, want them to understand that there is a God and that that God loves them very much. So if you're if you're going to resist us, we hope that the only thing that you're resisting is not our behavior, not the way we host you, um, but but that one idea that God has changed our lives. And we would hope that you would be open to considering that. If you're here, you've never given your life to Christ. I'm just telling you, that's what we're hoping is that you would give Christ a shot at changing your life because we believe that He will. So in this series, we're picking up the story from the time when Jesus rose from the dead. And, and uh, it's, it's the time when the church actually got started. The information that we get comes from uh, Luke, who was one of the followers of Jesus in the early church. And, and um, you know, he, he was one of four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lot of people don't know that Luke also, he was a doctor, and he also, so attention to detail, you know, if he's a doctor, he's going to give you lots of detail, he's going to pay attention to that kind of stuff, but he also wrote the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is a very significant book in the New Testament. I think a lot of people skip right over the book of Acts, you shouldn't do that, because the book of Acts is really what happened after Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to be with God. There's about 30 years there where the church develops and grows and, and takes shape and form and and it, it really becomes what it would be for generations to come. And it's really neat to read about. It's a fascinating read when you get into the book of Acts. That's where we're going to be today. And so what we learned last week about the early church is that early on, the early church had a very different foundation for their faith than many of us have. Because we were raised to believe that the foundation of our faith was the Bible. But they didn't have a Bible in the first century. The Bible wouldn't come for another three or four centuries, would come at the beginning of the fourth century. So what they based their faith on, and what I encouraged all of us to, place our, to base our faith on last week and this week, and really in this whole series, uh, is to step back onto something in terms of where our confidence comes from as a Christian. They chose as the foundation of their faith an event, specifically the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is why they believe, and the resurrection is why they chose to follow Jesus. And it should be the reason we choose to do that as well. So moving on with our storyline, the church launches in Jerusalem. Hundreds 
Eventually, thousands of people will embrace the message of Jesus, but this was a predominantly Jewish area. Consequently, uh, we aren't surprised to discover that the Christianity in the first century takes on a, a very Jewish flavor. And so it's understandable because most of the early Christians were Jewish. That's what they were familiar with. And because most of the Jewish leaders um, actually stayed in Jerusalem and stayed in Judea, the church just had kind of felt Jewish. And again, um, they were raised Jewish, and, and it was kind of ingrained in their thinking, and it's very difficult for them to unwind that, that Jewish part of them. When they got the message of Jesus, the Jewish stuff just got kind of intermingled and intertwined in there, and, and really acts as, as some of, especially what we're looking at today, is, is really we're going to see how they're trying to untangle some of the, the old customs and the old teachings that have wrapped themselves around some of the newer teachings. So as you might imagine, they began to do what happens now. They began to mix and match the covenants. They began to mix and match the old and the new, and, and as they began to mix and match, what they, you know, they're, they're trying to mix what they were raised with with what Jesus taught them. And um, you know, they just learned to embrace the old stuff. So when I talk about mix and match the covenants, I'm talking about God's covenant with Israel, which, which happens at Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain. He comes down with the Ten Commandments. And, and from the Ten Commandments, they got their civil law. They got, you know, rules to live by. Eventually, they're going to get dietary laws and all those kind of things. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus has something different to say. And he says, I am establishing a brand new covenant with the world. And this new covenant is being given to replace the old covenant. But again, the Jewish men and women, and we understand this, their consciences were hardwired to, to what we would call the Old Testament. Now, that's not what they called it. They didn't, they didn't call it that. They didn't call it an old anything. They called it the law and the prophets. So they were raised to believe certain things. More importantly, they were raised to behave in certain ways, and it was very difficult for them to break away from those, some of those behaviors from the law and the, and the prophets, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament thinking, just because of the way they grew up. But, and this is what we're going to talk about, uh, eventually they did break away from it, and they, they lost some of those habits and some of those old ways, and we need to do something very similar. Some of us, perhaps a lot of us, need to break away from, from similar habits of mixing and matching the covenants, and we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. So here's what happened. Thousands of people in and around Jerusalem, in the, in the area of Judea, uh, there, are, there are gobs of Christians there now. And persecution breaks out. And uh, suddenly there are more and more Jesus followers. And, and the religious leaders can't understand how this fledgling faith is getting off the ground when they're doing everything they can to put it down and to stifle it. But it continues to grow. The message of the church is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So a persecution breaks out against what they would have called in the first century the way. They didn't call it the church. They didn't call it Christians or Christianity. That wouldn't come for some time later. When they referred to these early Jesus followers, they referred to them as people of the way. And, and the ringleader in the persecution of the church was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who later is going to show up in our scriptures as the, the Apostle Paul. So, Saul was from Tarsus, he's a Pharisee, and he is a good Pharisee. He's an expert in keeping the Old Covenant, the Jewish law. In fact, at one point in one of his letters, he's bragging, and he says, I don't want to brag, but, but I was one of the best law keepers that you ever met. 
Like, you know, I went to the right schools. I had the right mentors. I was an extraordinary law keeper, and I was a good Jewish boy. And he understood that Christianity, it wasn't called that yet, but he understood that this new movement that was kind of getting off the ground, he understood that it was a threat to his religion and to his um, Judaism, and, and he was going to take some action. So he decided he was going to see to it that the entire thing gets shut down. And in his mind, someone had to put a stop to this thing that we would eventually call Christianity. And so somewhere between three and five years after the resurrection, Saul decides enough of this Jesus thing. And here's what the book of Acts tells us. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And when I, you read the word disciples there, think beyond the 12, okay? Think, think followers of Jesus, uh, you know, large group of, of followers. Second part of verse 1. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, which is, would have been way north from where they lived, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So basically, Paul goes, Saul from Tarsus goes to the high priest, and he pretty much says, I'd like to be deputized, and I'd like to have the authority to be able to go up to Damascus and, and round up as many Christians as I can find, put them in chains, put them on wagons, bring them back to Jerusalem and have them tried and possibly have them put to death. So he had no problem, Paul had no problem, Saul at the time, had no problem leveraging violence to do what he considered the will of God. Now you have to ask yourself, why would Saul have thought violence against the will of God was okay? And the answer is this because of what he was taught in the Old Covenant. This wasn't an issue of conscience. In fact, he went to the high priest who oversaw all of ancient Judaism at the time, and he said, is it okay for me to leverage violence and use force and to bring these people back to, be, to face persecution and possibly death? And the high priest didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, don't, we don't do that. We don't hurt people. We don't, we don't mistreat anybody. No, the high priest said, absolutely, let me give you permission and some paperwork so that you can go be on your way. So Paul, Saul, sets out to destroy the church, all the while thinking that he is doing God this huge favor. And so people were executed. They had, they had Jesus killed. Um, they had stoned a man named Stephen. So it's open season on followers of the way, and Saul of Tarsus has decided he is going to be the one that leads the charge. So he gets permission, he's deputized, he heads to Damascus, but something happens on the way to Damascus, something amazing, something big, something that we've all heard about. In fact, we, all, we use language in our culture from, from an event that happened to, to Saul on the way to Damascus. When we talk about, I saw the light, that's where that comes from. Just like Saul is on the way to Damascus, he sees this this bright light. He's on his way to Damascus to round these people up. He's, he means harm, and he encounters this bright light. It blinds him, knocks him to the ground, and when he stands up, he can't see. The people around him cannot explain what has just happened. Now, they go, and they finish their journey, and now they're in Damascus, and he's not rounding anybody up. He really doesn't know what to do, but this much he knows. Saul of Tarsus knows this. He knows that this is a God thing, and he knows that this is divine intervention. God has done something here. He's up to something, and he has discovered that perhaps he is at odds with God. 
While he is in Damascus, God taps a man named Ananias on the shoulder, and, and uh, essentially he says, Ananias, and Ananias was a follower of Jesus, he said, Ananias, Saul of Tarsus is in town, and I'd like for you to go and have an appointment with him, because I have a message for him. Now, Ananias is, a, this is, Ananias is the exact kind of person Saul is on the way to get, all right? So, so you might imagine when Ananias gets this message from God, he's, he's not in a big hurry. Listen to what Ananias said. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. In other words, God, I know who you're talking about. We all know who you're talking about. We know he's on the way here to get to us. This is not a good dude, okay? He, he, and by the way, God, which is what we do, right? We, when God, we think God's calling us to something that doesn't make sense or we don't want to do. We start to inform God, don't we? We start to tell God why it's a bad idea. Like, God, no, we, we, we can't, can't do that. Listen, listen to Ananias. He has come here, as if God doesn't know this, he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, we know all about this guy. In fact, God, when you interrupted me, I was packing. My, me and my family, we're getting out of Dodge. Okay, we're not sticking around. This guy means trouble. And you want me? <laughs> you want me to go have an appointment with him? Are you kidding me? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So God recruits Saul of Tarsus, who was a Roman citizen. Now, here's the cool thing. I, lo I love this story. I love Ananias. Um, if, if there is no Ananias in Scripture, you have to wonder how the world would be different. I mean, Paul is going to eventually get a lot of credit, as he should, for for all of his missionary journeys and all the people that he led to Jesus and being this rock star uh, apostle. and I mean, where would we be without Paul? But the question is, where would we be without Ananias, who does this one little thing behind the scenes and musters up the courage and the strength to go to this man that he knows has come to Damascus to hurt people like him? And yet when God said, Ananias, I want you to go. I want you to put your hands on him. I want you to be a friend to him. I want you to pray with him. Ananias, even though he was afraid, even though he, he wasn't sure, and even though he even talked back to God and tried to talk God out of it, he does what God tells him to do. The trust and the bravery and the courage of Ananias makes him one of my favorite people. Um, Saul is blind. Ananias shows up, lays hands on him. Saul regains his sight, and not only does he regain his physical sight, the Apostle Paul, as we will come to know him, his eyes are not only opened physically, but his eyes are opened with extraordinary clarity about the difference and conflict with the old covenant that he had grown up with and followed his entire life and the new covenant that is now being launched because of Jesus. He saw what his contemporaries missed, and he saw what it is easy for us to miss. He saw the incompatibility of the new and the old covenant not just as it pertained to salvation, because those of us who were raised in the church, that's the big differentiator for us. What we say is the old covenant, people were saved by faith, or were saved by works. And in the new covenant, people are saved by faith. Paul is eventually going to come along and say, no, everybody is saved by faith. Everybody is saved by grace. And these Jewish people thought that they were, the, the Jewish people, people like Saul, they thought they were in with God just by virtue of who they were born to. 
If you had the, right, the, le- the correct last name, you were in. But if you had the wrong last name, you were out. That's the way these people thought. And so Paul is going to come along and say, no, the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant, they are incompatible in just about every area of life. And here's the amazing thing about the story. Paul instantly, instantly, overnight, transitions from an, a violent inquisitor who was out to round up men and have them persecuted in Jerusalem to someone who would never again leverage violence against the name of God. All of that changed in one day. In fact, it will be the Apostle Paul who will give us some of the most fabulous literature that has ever been written on the subject of unconditional love. In fact, some of that language you probably have had used in your wedding. He made the transition in a day because when his eyes were opened, he had extraordinary clarity around the incompatibility of the Old and the New Covenants, what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the the Old Covenant with Israel and God's New Covenant with the entire world. They would have called it the Law and the Prophets back then. Paul had set out to purge his nation of the way and the message of Jesus But in the end, his life ambition and goal would be to reach every single nation for Jesus. And it all changed overnight. One last statement about him, and we're going to come back to him next week. He immediately let go of God's temporary and conditional covenant with Israel to embrace God's permanent and unconditional covenant with the entire human race. He saw what his contemporaries could not see, and he saw what many of us have difficulty seeing even today, and we're going to get into that a little bit next week as well. You need to, hopefully you'll hear all these. If, you don't, if you're not able to be here next week, catch it online because these are important messages. Meanwhile, Peter is the head of the local church. Peter. We're going to shift gears. We're talking about Peter now. And he's going to have his own struggle as well with this whole mixing and matching thing. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to mix and match the Old Covenant. We're going to see what his struggle was all about. He too has been raised Jewish. And, and now we're about 10 years removed from the resurrection. We're about five years from, removed from the story I just told you about with, with Paul. And so Peter is like most Jewish Christians around Judea. He is still clinging to the old covenant. And uh, he's trying to mix and match. He's trying to figure out how to do this Jesus thing, but he doesn't want to let go of the way he was raised. He doesn't want to let go of all that old covenant stuff. And so just as God arranged an intervention with Paul, God also arranged an intervention with Peter. Peter is over at the Mediterranean Sea. He is in a town called Joppa, and it's beautiful over there. This is a beautiful part of the world, and and he's he's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He's at some friend's house. He's up on their roof. He's decided to go up there and take in that beautiful view and vista, and he's going to, you know, hear the surf, and he's going to smell the salt water, and he's going to see that beautiful sea, and just, you know, it's this Mediterranean, gorgeous and um, down below, they're cooking dinner. It's about noontime, and he can smell the food that's being cooked. And so he's up there, and he eventually falls asleep. And while he's asleep, he has a dream in which all of the animals that as a Jewish boy or a Jewish man, he was not allowed to touch, not allowed to hunt, not allowed to kill, certainly not allowed to eat. And in this dream, he hears a voice that says to him, kill them, cook them, and eat them. Kill them, cook them, and eat them. And Peter's knee-jerk reaction would have been to say, oh no, I can't do that. 
That's exactly what I was raised not to do. My whole life has been about not touching those things. And in his dream, he speaks to this voice, which turns out to be the voice of the Lord. And he says, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. God, all of these animals I'm seeing in this dream, they're all unclean. And your law says we are not to touch those things. And we certainly are not to eat them. And I've never touched one, and I'm not about to start now. Lord, (laughs) sir, don't strike me down, right? It didn't make any sense to him whatsoever. It just seemed crazy. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, this is so confusing because since he is a kid, he has thought that these animals were off limits to him. And his scripture teaches that these animals are off limits to him. And now he's hearing a voice that he believes is a divine voice, and it's saying, no, I want you to do what you've been told your entire life not to do. I want you to go take these animals and eat them. So now he's thinking what any one of us might have thought. Whoa, did God change his mind? And this part of the conflict, it's at this point that many who were raised in the church like me, where we, you know, we're trying to mix and match and mingle the Old Testament with the New Testament, we come to that question as well. Did God change his mind? I had somebody this morning walk out, and that's exactly what they said. Brett, did God change his mind? The answer is no. He changed covenants. He changed covenants. The first covenant was the covenant that God had established with the nation of Israel. It was a means to an end. But then once Jesus showed up, that was the end for that covenant. It was over. So for, you know, the Jewish people in Judea, it was so hard for them to not mix and match these covenants. And again, their conscience was fine-tuned, hardwired into what they had grown up with their entire life. And as soon as this vision was over, there is a knock on the door. And Peter hears them call from downstairs, and they say, Peter, the door is someone at the door, and it's for you. He goes downstairs. He sees two men and a soldier, and they say, we have come from the home of Cornelius. Cornelius lives in Caesarea. He is a follower of God. He believes in Jesus, but he doesn't know much, and he, he knows that you have spent time with Jesus, and he would like, he heard you were in Joppa. He would like it if you would come up to Caesarea and, and spend some time with he and his family and tell him the story of Jesus, because we know that you were with Jesus from the very beginning, and we've heard bits and pieces, but we've never heard the whole thing. And, and you know, uh, oh, Cornelius is a God-fearing man, and he believes in the one true God. But would you come and teach him and talk to him in, in his household? Now, before this time, and this is kind of hard for us to get our head wrapped around this, Peter had never stepped foot in a Gentile home. Never. In all the years Peter had lived, he'd never stepped inside a a, a Gentile home because the Old Covenant prohibited him from doing that. We call it the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And it was clear, do not contaminate yourselves by mixing and mingling with the Gentiles. So you weren't allowed to go into a Gentile's home. In fact, when they arrest Jesus and the religious leaders come to the home of Pilate, And Pilate opens the door and he says, come on into my house. The religious leaders go, you know we can't come into your house. 
you know that if we, we, we are not allowed to come into your house because we're afraid we'll get Gentile cooties if we come into your house, right? Like, we know better than that. You know, you know we can't come into your house. You come out to us. Why? Were they crazy? Were they narrow-minded? No. That's what the law and the prophets commanded. Well, now Peter is on his way. He's got a bunch of friends with him. He's on his way to, to see Cornelius up in Caesarea. He's got some friends with him that are also Jewish believers. Okay, they, They're Christians, but they're, they're trying to do this mix and match thing as well. And, and they get to the house of Cornelius. They open the door, and Peter's standing there, and you know, Cornelius invites him in. And I, If you've ever seen What About Bob, there's a scene where he's trying to talk himself onto the elevator, and he just can't get on the elevator, right? I, that's Peter. I think Peter, like he gets right to the threshold, and he's like, I can't do it. You know, and he backs up and, and, okay, I can do it, I can do it. No, I can't, I can't do it. And he's, he's, you know, like everybody, you all go in and I'll work up my courage. Peter is trying to get to the place where he can do this thing that he's been taught his entire life he's not supposed to do. And so he eventually crosses over and he steps inside a Gentile home. But now he's had this vision and he's trying to figure it all out and it's so difficult for him to unwrap and, un, un, you know, wind all these layers and, and, you know, there are just times. Have you ever experienced this as you've grown up uh, following Jesus? And, you know, as you mature and you learn and you grow and something that you might have thought was something that you can't do or shouldn't do when you're younger, you, as you get older, you're like, well, I have liberty in Christ. I can do that if I want to. And, and then you engage in that or you do that and it's like you're looking over your shoulder. Like some people might have grown up in an environment where caffeine was something that you weren't supposed to have. But then as you get older, you're like, no, I can drink coffee. And you, you kind of walk around, you feel like a rebel because you got a cup of coffee in your hand, like, woo, right? Look at me. That's Peter. He's thinking to himself, I can do this. So he steps across the threshold. Verse 27, Peter went inside and found a large crowd, a large gathering of people. It's a large room full of Gentiles. The centurion's there, uh, family and friends, women, children. And Peter's opening line is so offensive it lets us know what a struggle he is having to differentiate between the old, where God is saying, hey, we're done with that, it's obsolete, it's over, and the new, which God is wanting to unleash on the world. And I'm sure Peter was nervous, okay? So we got to cut him a little bit of slack. There are all these Gentiles, and they're here to hear the story of Jesus. And they look at Peter like he is a rock star, like, this is Peter. He was with Jesus. He, was, he walked on the water with Jesus. Sure, he fell in, but for a little while he was walking. This is Peter. This is the guy. He's a rock star. They're in awe. Here's Peter's opening line. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. In other words, as you all know, we don't hang out with y'all. We, we, you're different from us, and we've never hung out from, with you, and I, I'm not even supposed to be in your house. I wouldn't have even come to your house. I shouldn't even be here. This was not my idea. I wouldn't have come, but here I am, and here's why. Because Peter's law, the Old Covenant, the law and the prophets, was exclusive and excluding. That's the Old Covenant. He didn't misunderstand it. He didn't misread it. He had been raised his entire life to believe in it, and it was exclusive and excluding. It was designed that way by God for a purpose. 
And now he is being called to let go of all that, and now his next line is even worse. Look at the next line, verse 28. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Implication? (laughs) Until yesterday, I considered all of you impure and unclean. (laughs) And it's worse. I had scripture to back it up, (laughs) right? If you had come to me and said, come to my house, I'd have said, I can't go into your house. Why? Because my Bible says I can't go into your house. We are God's holy people. We are set apart. We don't eat your food. We don't drink your water. We don't marry your women. We don't wear your clothes. We don't do anything like you. We are set apart. And he would have been exactly right. But something new had been unleashed in the world. And it was unleashed for you, and it was unleashed for me. And then he says... And he's not supposed to, you know, he, he, he's supposed to be there helping them. He's supposed to be there teaching them. But you can kind of hear him like self-counseling. You can hear it as he's talking. He's, you know, the, the people are like, are we ever going to get to, you're going to talk about Jesus? And he's like, well, you know, give me a minute. But verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. In other words, I understand that God has now thrown the doors open and everybody is welcome in. Now, this is so intuitive to us. We get it. Of course God loves everyone. Of course he does. But let me just be real clear. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that God loves everybody. Do I have your attention? That just made you lean in, didn't it? Where are you going, Brett? The New Covenant teaches that God loves everybody. The Bible teaches God loves mostly the Jews. And the Bible also teaches God loves everybody. The two covenants are incompatible. One was a means to the other, but once the other got here, this is God's way of saying to the first century followers, hey, you got to let that go. You can't hang on to that anymore. So Peter finally regains his composure, and he's like, okay, That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for you, so let me tell you about Jesus. And these people are spellbound. They just live a few miles away from where half this stuff happened, and they're leaning in. They're wanting to hear. And and as Peter finishes up, this is what he says. We are witnesses of everything he did. I'm not telling you what I heard about. I'm not telling you what I've read about. I'm telling you what I saw. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he goes on. And he's going to have his big finale, and they are leaning in. They want to hear what Peter's going to wrap this whole thing up with. They are enthralled in this message. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. And if you were here for Easter and you were here last week, you can pretty much tell what the next line is going to be. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. And Peter would say, and I saw him. And I saw him more than once. Now, he's not even done yet. He's got to have the big finish. He's got to do the big preacher finish, you know, where, you know, altar call, and they're going to sing a couple of stanzas of Amazing Grace and come, you know, come as I am or just as I am, and, and you know, Gentiles are just going to flood the aisles. It's going to be awesome. He's not even finished with the sermon, and suddenly something unbelievable happens, and it freaks everybody in the room out. The same thing that happened to the, to the, the disciples some 10 years earlier when they were in Jerusalem, remember last week we said the wind blew and the, and the Spirit came and they got filled with the Holy Spirit and they started speaking in different languages. The Gentiles now, that happens to them. 
the Spirit fills the, this room and fills all these Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, <laughs> suddenly these Gentiles in the room are with Peter and they're having the same experience that Peter and the other disciples have had 10 years earlier. In fact, the group that was with, with Peter, there was a group that, that came up with them from Joppa to, Cornea, to uh, Caesarea. That group was called the Circumcised Believers. Isn't that a weird name? The Circumcised Believers. But the circumcised believers were there. And, and you know, here's what that means. Um, a circumcised believer is a Jewish man who has become a Jesus follower, but he's still trying to mix and match. He's still trying to do it the old way. He's still trying to figure out how to do this Jesus thing, but he's still got the old way. So when you read that, that's what that's talking about. So they're still trying to keep the law. They're still trying to do the new covenant, and they're mixing and matching. Then we come to verse 45. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Now that, to us, that sounds so racist. It sounds so narrow-minded. Come on, Brett. God loves everybody. But I'm just telling you, you need to know. God does not love everybody the same in the Old Testament. You think he did because of how you got your Bible. But the people who were closest to the action, the people who grew up in this culture, they were correct. Under the Old Testament, God was going to do something unique for the world, but he drew a circle around the Jews and he said, you are not to be like your neighbors, you are to be separate, do not let them in, and when you go out, you be careful. And suddenly, all of that is gone, and Peter and the Jewish men with him are like, oh my goodness, this whole thing is being turned upside down. The next chapter we read, Acts chapter 11, verse 1, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Again, this is years after the resurrection, so it's kind of slow to dawn on them. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? You ate Gentile food in a Gentile home? You are a sorry excuse for a Jew. You are a sorry excuse for a, a Jewish Christian. And we read that and we go, what is with these people? They understood the old covenant in a way maybe that you and I don't. This is why if you grew up in a church, your tendency is to mix and match the old and the new. And the first century church was discovering that that is not to be done. And we'll get into that next week. And here's what happened. There's persecution happening now. Everybody is leaving Jerusalem and Judea, and, and some of the Jesus followers, in fact, a lot of the Jesus followers, are making their way 300 miles north to a city called Antioch. Now, Antioch is a Greek and Roman city, pretty wealthy city, um, not very many Christians there, but uh, metropolitan, you know, sophisticated, Greek-Roman, pretty wealthy, and Christians are migrating up there, and as more and more of them accumulate up there and start talking about Jesus, it has an effect, and the, the message of Jesus starts to spread, and now Antioch is being filled with Christians throughout the city. And so as the city grows, there are so many Christians that they send for help with the church, and they say, look, you've got to send somebody up here because the church is blowing up. And we read this in verse 21 of Acts 11. Great, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So they send a guy named Barnabas. 
And Barnabas goes to Antioch, and he does such a great job that the church grows even more. Well, it grows so big that they, he can't even keep up with it. So he reaches out, he taps the big gun. We read this in verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a, while, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, this is a great line, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So this is where the word Christian comes from. It wasn't meant as a pleasant word or a nice word. It was kind of meant like somebody calling you a redneck or a deadhead. You know, you might be a redneck and wear that proudly, but when they first invented that word, that wasn't meant to be worn proudly. That was meant as an insult. And when they came up with the word Christian, it was like little Jesuses. Look at the little Jesuses. It was meant as an insult. But the Christian believers started to say, you know what, we'll wear that with pride. That'll be our name. And so from Jerusalem, Christianity is now spreading. It's reached the Gentile world. The Jews are back in Jerusalem, and, and, and they're, they're saying, you know, what are we going to do? All these Gentiles are coming to Jesus, and they don't know the Ten Commandments, and they don't know the stories, and they're not acting like Jews. What, you know, what are we going to do? And, 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 but they were still Christians, so what are they going to do with them? And we're going to talk about that next week as well. So here's the question. Everything I've said so far is to bring us to this question. Here's the question. What does any of that have to do with any of us? I mean, we're over that. We're wide open. Brett, everybody's welcome. Jesus loves everybody. We're good, right? No. We're not good, and here's why. One of the things that makes the current church and current Christians unnecessarily resistible is our propensity to mix and match the covenants. God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant with the world. We blend, churches blend, pastors blend with the, the new and old covenants all the time. We blend old covenant values and imperatives with the values and imperatives of the new covenant, and we do it all the time. And I was raised doing the same thing, and I understand why we do it. We do it because of the way we were given our Bible. This Bible is over 50 years old. <laughs> My grandmother gave this to me, and she spared no expense. This, this is King James. It has a zipper around it. It's got the little cross pull. Awesome. It's got my name on the front. I was given this when I was nine years old, okay? Precious to me. This is a precious thing to me. I've held on to it all these years. But here's the thing. Whoever gave you your first Bible, or if you went to the store and you bought it, here's what they didn't do that they should have done. When they handed it to you, what they should have said was, now listen, there's an old part and there's a new part. And they're separate. And they don't play well together. Okay, One is different than the other, and you should probably spend the majority of your time in the one in the back, not the one in the front. The first covenant is with a nation. The second covenant is is with a people of all nations, and you should probably spend the majority of your time in the one in the back. What we were told was, when we were given a Bible, we were, we were told, we were given a Bible, and we were said, this is God's word. Don't put anything on it, right? And so what we did is we put it on our coffee table, but don't put your coffee on it. And if you put any papers on your table, make sure they go under the Bible. Don't ever put magazines on top. Did you ever see your mom take all the magazines off and make sure the Bible was always on top? Because that's what we were taught, right? 
Be honest. Be honest. You grew up revering it, but not reading it. And here's what happened in our culture. Here's what happened. You believe in the Bible? Oh, yes. It's holy. It's holy. Do you read it? Oh, no. It's holy. <laughs> it's holy. I go to church and the preacher reads it to me. I tried reading it one time. I got so confused. You know, I believe it. I believe it's all true. Wait, 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 wait. You believe it's all true, but you've never read it? Oh, yeah, because it's holy. It's holy. Wait, wait. You believe it's all true. You believe it's holy. Yes. But you've never read it. Who does that? Children do that. Children believe what they're told without reading something. I think it's also true, and, and listen, it would be easy to listen to me and think, I'm not sure Brett believes the Bible. No, I do believe the Bible, okay? I do. You don't have to walk out of here thinking, our pastor is a heretic. You don't have to think that, right? I, I, listen, I've dedicated my life to teaching Scripture. But I think that Peter's lesson was a lesson for us as well. And the Apostle Paul's words that we're going to look at next week are lessons for us as well. Two fabulous covenants and, when, covenants, and when you try to mix and match them, you will get the worst of both, and you will never get the best of either. And our tendency, because of our devotional books and because of our song books, is to kind of shave the rough edges off of the old covenant to try to make it play nicely with the new. And here's what Peter would tell you. Here's what Paul would tell you. Here's what the brother, James, the brother of Jesus, would tell you. They don't play well together. They are two completely different covenants. One led to the other, but once you get to the new one, you've got to let the old one go. And eventually the early church got this right. New covenant values and imperatives stand in sharp contrast to the values and imperatives of the old covenant. They just do. Old covenant, we're pretty much talking about Exodus through Malachi. This was between God and Israel. It was a conditional covenant. If you will, I will. If you will, I will. That's how it went. But I'm just telling you, this should be liberating to you. And for those of you who've walked away or you're thinking about walking away from faith because of something in the Bible or something that's about the Bible that's in, you know, that, that you've heard said, this is your invitation back. It is not our covenant. The old covenant is not our covenant. Ours is better. It's just better. And mixing and matching diminishes our influence in our culture. Two quick examples and we're done. You're like, when is this dude going to shut up, man? To, i got to make these points. These are important. I would normally skip, but I can't skip these, okay? Two examples. We've, there's a question that we've got to stop asking. And you're not going to like this, and when you hear this come out of my mouth, um, it may make you not ever want to come back here, but I'm telling you, you need to come back next week. We've got to stop asking this question. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about that? I've been asked that question thousands of times. Brett, what does the Bible say about that? That is a really, really bad question. And here's why we have to quit asking it. Because the Old Testament says, stone her. And the New Testament says, forgive her. The Old Covenant says, pray for your enemy's death. 
And the new covenant says, pray for your enemies. So what does the Bible say? (laughs) That's what the Bible says. Let me give you a better question. What does the new covenant teach? What does the New Testament teach? Better question yet is, you know, when my mom, we called her Mom Mitchell, was my grandmother, when she gave me this book, one thing I thought was really cool is the words of Jesus were in red. I was in high cotton. I got me one of them air books with the red words in it. What does Jesus say? That's a better question. Brett, are you saying that the two sections of the Bible conflict? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Where did you learn that? I learned that from Peter. I learned that from Paul. And I learned that from Jesus who said, I'm here to land the plane and fulfill the old one and launch a new one. Jesus, why are you launching another? Because it's different and because it's inclusive of the entire world. Have you ever heard a preacher preach and he just seems angry? Just mad, right? Like he, he, you know, he's angry about sinners and he's happy about hell. You ever seen a preacher like that? Angry about sinners and happy about hell. That's old covenant thinking that has leaked in because he has mixed and matched and railing against a nation and God's going to judge you and God's going to get you. Listen, that's old covenant stuff. In the new covenant, do you know what we discover? Sin doesn't make God angry. Sin breaks God's heart. Because sin hurts you. And sin hurts me. And he loves us. And he hates anything that hurts us. And so sin breaks his heart. How many times have we heard a Christian say something, go rail about some non-Christian who did something You know, I can't believe they acted like that. Well, why wouldn't they act like that? They never professed Christ. I don't ever expect somebody who hasn't professed Jesus and and given their life to him, I don't ever expect them to act like a Christian. They're doing what they do. They're acting normally. Why would I expect someone who's never given their life to Christ to live like a Christian? Paul, the first church planner, said it like this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Why would we hold them to a standard that they've never embraced? I'm not to judge outsiders. But you take the Old Testament values and imperatives and you mix them and match them with the new covenant and you end up with a mess and you end up with a message that unnecessarily drives people away from the gospel. It makes us resistible. So here's the last thing and then I'll shut up, okay? Why is it that Christians are so intent on putting the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn? And when you ask people, you get an answer something like this. Well, it reminds us that God is the lawgiver. That's good. God's the lawgiver. But why don't we put something on the courthouse lawn maybe that Jesus said? Something like, love your enemies. Because I can't get mad about that. I can't yell at anybody about that. I mean, we need something we can get angry about. Let me just be super honest with you. We cannot hide behind the Ten Commandments anymore. You know why? Because everybody's figured out that there's more than ten of them. The Ten Commandments really are a table of contents for the whole Jewish law. And everybody figured out there's more than ten. There's more like 613. And so the Ten Commandments have become the table of contents for this. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts... You shall cut off her hand. And then don't leave out the last part. Show her no pity. 
maybe we shouldn't put the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn after you think about it. (laughs) I have some great news. Our covenant is better. It's better. It's practically irresistible, but our world will not understand it until we do. Like Peter, like Paul, we got to let go of the old. We have to embrace the new. We cannot mix and match these covenants because our message is irresistible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And who would ever believe in that would not be lost to God, would not be perish, but would be saved forever. Listen, if they're going to resist anything, let them resist that message and let them explain that to God. But let's don't be a part of the problem, okay? Long sermon. Thank you for hanging with me. Let's pray, and then there's going to be some announcements. Father, as we walk out into the world, I pray, Father, first of all, that we would not judge the outsiders. I pray that we would always be inclusive, and, and even when we talk about racism today, that we would never be a party of that, to that. Help us to have all those conversations in grace and tolerance and, and, and the love of Christ, and help us to be a part of the solution and not part of the problem. But, Father, help us to also understand that when you came in Jesus. The old is gone. You fulfilled it. It had its time. It had its season. It had its purpose. But you launched a whole new thing. And the two, one was written to a specific group of people. It was not even written to us. And then this new one is is definitely written to us where you call us to serve and love and have compassion and empathy and grace. And Father, that stuff is hard. It's so hard. But that's what you call us to and that's what we can do when we have your help. So, Father, would we be about that? Would we not try to mix and match, but would we be full in on this new covenant that Jesus brought? I pray for the believers in this room this morning that you, that you would encourage them with that and for the one who's far from God, that they would see that there is room at the table for them. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.